Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I don't see it as this sort of, you know, ultimate um, definition of ourselves, which is part of the narrative that I think really messes with, with mothers particularly. I mean, I think there's this idea that you know, your life isn't realized until you've had children. And then secondly, once you have children, you're going to become this pristine, sanitized version of yourself. And that if you buy enough of the right products and read enough of the right books, you're going to be able to categorize and manage parenthood in this really organized, contained way. And that just wasn't my experience. Um, my experience was I'm the same asshole now that I before, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm the same. You know, I've got the same flaws. I'm, I'm the same. I've got the same interests. I wasn't erased when I became a mother. Um, I don't find it infinitely fulfilling, and I I, I wasn't brushed into this per pristine version of myself to do this incredible, you know, this supposedly, you know, incredibly central, most important job in the world. And that was why I started writing because I just, it wasn't my experience. And I started wondering if, you know, the rest of the parenting world was crazier. I was, you know, I was like, one of us is definitely lying, right? <laughs> like, mm -hmm. <laughs> one of us is full of shit. And if it's me, that's okay. But I want to know. <laughs> yeah. So I started writing um, to disrupt, and to, but really just to discover if there were other parents who felt like I did, who felt this sense of, you know, deep devotion, obviously, and gratitude for your family, but uh -huh. also feeling like, you know, is this really all there is? And why, why do I suck at this so badly if, um, if I care this much, you know, type thing. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. 
from ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Janelle, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you, Srini. It's good yeah. to be here. Good to be back. Well, you are one of a handful of guests who has had more than two appearances on The Unmistakable Creative and for good reason. Uh, funny enough, I remember the first time I stumbled across your writing, I was like, I don't read mom blogs, but I can't stop reading this. Uh, <laughs> and I realized, I was like, okay, this is not a mom blog. This is something far more interesting. Uh, so you. I want to start by asking you, what did your parents do for a living? And what impact did that end up having on the direction that you have taken with your life and your career? That's a really great question. Great. <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, my dad worked. So my grandmother started a, um, she was the first female um, editor of the University of Washington newspaper in the 50s. And then when she graduated, she bought 
and edited um, local newspapers. So she she started in an unincorporated um, country town out in way in Northern California in Lake County. And so by the time I was born, my dad and my mom both worked with her at the newspaper. Um, and when my parents divorced, my dad stayed on at my grandmother's newspapers, different one, but same type of deal, local um, journalism. And, and my mom was this sort of hustling renegade um, entrepreneur, single mother, taking care of her two children, but refusing to, um, go into like a cubicle job or something that would take her away. She was fiercely insistent on her own independence, despite being a single mother and very poor. Um, and so she ended up, she started her own little travel magazine in central California and, um, kind of hustled with that. And then she ended up, but she'd get all these side jobs. She'd do these like junkets to Reno for gamblers. And she worked at a knife store in the mall for a while. And, um, as unnerving as that was as a child to sort of watch her and wonder if she was going to succeed or wonder if it was going to work, um, or, you know, how the electricity bill was going to get paid some months. I really learned from her more than anything, this idea that if you want something, you just go do it, even if it doesn't make a lot of sense and that you really can define your own life in terms of how you make money. And there's a huge risk involved in that and that it may not be for everyone. Um, and there will definitely be terrifying moments of how the hell are we going to pay this bill? But it was the freedom that she had that really resonated with me and, and stayed with me. The sense of you just go out and do your best to do it, no matter how sort of little sense it makes. If it, if it means that much to you def to define your economic life in those terms. And I'm not trying to say that, you know, everyone should go out and do that or can. I mean, I understand people who are working jobs they hate to survive. That's not what I'm saying. But she was just unwilling to do that for better or worse. And, and that taught me a lot about um, the role of, of that risk taking and um, just carving your own way despite the, what society defines for you. Mm -hmm. How do you develop a tolerance for risk and uh, make a, a sort of a, a path of your own choosing despite sort of having deeply embedded social programming that is based on what society defines for you? Well, I mean, to be quite honest with you, the only reason I can do it is because I have a partner. <laughs> I mean, I have four children, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't... Um, I couldn't do this. I couldn't have made a lot of the choices I made as a writer if he weren't there. Um, just because, you know, four kids, we can't, what are we going to do? You know, I mean, okay. you've got to keep a head over there, you know, keep, keep, a, keep a roof over their heads and, and keep food in their stomachs. Um, but in terms of beyond that, how I've been willing to accept the risk of, you know, I, I quit my job. Um, I quit teaching to pursue writing, which really didn't make a lot of sense in the economic um, context of my life. And it was a, it was a big risk. I mean, but the way I managed that was simply um, that I think that sometimes you have to just pull the plug to have the courage to do it. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. let's think we all want to see the path 
before we take the step, you know, like, okay, I want to see my next job. I hate my current job. I know that it's bullshit. I know my life is, you know, I, I hate what I'm doing, but I need to see where I'm going next in order to leave what I'm currently doing. And I think sometimes we have to just pull the plug and leap and trust that we're going to figure it out because frankly, we're going to have no choice. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and, and that was sort of what I did. Uh, just because I think sometimes it's just, it's just too, well, we can spend our whole lives sitting and waiting for the path to materialize. And it, and and it often doesn't until that fire of necessity is underneath us. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it definitely does. Um, you know, it's interesting that uh, you brought up, you know, sort of having the you know, parents involved in, in a journalism of all things uh, and a newspaper, which I think makes for sort of an interesting conversation given our current media environment and how uh, yeah. polarizing and divisive it has become because we have different versions of, of the truth based on the media that we consume. Exactly. And I think that to me, one of the things that's fascinating about your work is that you are challenging uh, sort of the cultural narrative of of parenting. Uh, mm-hmm. And so one, what is the sort of standard media narrative of parenting and what prompted you to challenge it? I think the, I mean, what I've observed, the standard narrative, particularly is associated with mothers, but, um, and maybe it's the same with dads, although I think it is hyper, you know, it's concentrated on this on motherhood, um, is this idea that, I mean, first of all, that having children is this really (laughs) sort of sanctimonious, um, ultimately meaningful activity, which, you know, I'll probably get killed for saying this, but I'm not sure I fully buy into that. I mean, I think that having children is, um, as rewarding as, as any other life activity, um, in terms of if you really want it, you know, and if, if you find value and, um, meaningfulness in that, but I, I don't see it as this sort of, you know, ultimate um, definition of ourselves, which is part of the narrative that I think really messes with with mothers, particularly. I mean, I think there's this idea that, you know, your life isn't realized until you've had children. And then secondly, once you have children, you're going to become this pristine, sanitized version of yourself. And that if you buy enough of the right products and read enough of the right books, you're going to be able to categorize and manage parenthood in this really organized, contained way. And that just wasn't my experience. Um, my experience was I'm the same asshole now that I before. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm the same, you know, I've got the same flaws. I've, I'm the same, I've got the same interests. I wasn't erased when I became a mother. Um, I don't find it infinitely fulfilling. And, I, I, I wasn't brushed into this pristine version of myself to do this, you know, this supposedly, you know, incredibly central, most important job in the world. And that was why I started writing because I just, it wasn't my experience. And I started wondering if, you know, the rest of the parenting world was crazier. I was, you know, I was like, one of us is definitely lying, right? (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. (laughs) one of us is full of shit. And if it's me, that's okay. But I want to (laughs) know. So I started writing, um, to disrupt and to, but really just to discover if there were other parents who felt like I did, who felt this sense of, you know, deep devotion, obviously, and gratitude for your family, but Uh also feeling like, you know, is this really all there is? And why, why do I suck at this so badly? If, um, if I care this much, you know, type thing. Uh, do you, 
I think that uh, having been exposed to journalism at uh, such an early age from having seen your grandmother and your parents has had an impact on this. Yes, because um, my parents were always interested in discovering the truth of something more than they were sort of the tribal sides, right? So it was less about right and left, the politics, and more about what's, what's the truth? What's, you know, how do we get, how do we use some critical thinking to, to sift through this and discover what's actually going on? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Which I think is one of the things we're seeing right now is that people aren't even looking at, um, it's, I feel like there's a very limited desire on both sides really to, to examine, you know, what's, what's true, what's false, what's adding up, what's, what's a, what's fake. And, and, and even if it disrupts or doesn't align with what you already believe, like this, this sort of devotion, you know, dedication to discovering the truth, whether or not it aligns with what you want it to be, you know, what you have already decided it to be, mm-hmm. you know, that sort of just research and journalistic way of looking at the world. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it's interesting you say that a uh, couple of, of nights ago, I was watching this documentary on Vice, uh, Vice News, and they do some really interesting documentaries by HBO. And they were actually uh, it was a documentary about uh, a border town in Arizona. And I got to see a side of this story about, you know, putting up a border wall or protecting the border from a side that I've never seen it from before, uh, from people who are very much in support of this idea. And, you know, for the longest time, I thought this idea is nonsense. It's completely insane. But when I saw the story of, by the way, our borders are being overrun by people who are bringing in drugs, literally, like, and the thing is that you've got very minimal border guard protection. It's like, okay, you've got an army of drug cartel people and a small border guard. What are you going to do in that situation? And I don't agree with the notion of building a wall at all. Mm -hmm. But I suddenly had a much deeper understanding of why these people feel the way that they do. Exactly. And it's uncomfortable, right? Yeah, it's, uncomfortable. it's totally uncomfortable. I mean, I'm, I'm Indian. So like for a minority to say, okay, I understand why these, you know, initially I wrote them all off as just racist lunatics. But now when I got to see some of the downsides of what they're struggling with, I was like, okay, I, I, you know, I don't agree with the point of view, but I understand it now. Exactly. And I think that that's really, really hard for people. I mean, it's hard. It's hard for me. It's hard for everyone to go, you know, cause we construct this us versus them mentality and to have to have to really examine why are these things in existence beyond, you know, that person is wrong or mm-hmm. that person's just this or that. And these sort of broad breaststrokes, I think it's really difficult. <laughs> yeah. And, um, but I don't think we're going to make any progress until we start really looking at, you know, where did this stuff come from? I mean, it didn't, it didn't, none of this stuff that we're facing right now was developed in a vacuum. I mean, it didn't yeah. just pop up one day. I mean, this is like, you know, years in the making. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's, I get in a lot of trouble too. I, there's a section in my book where I talk about, um, the, the, I live next rather, um, well, the, yeah, well, okay. Briefly, I address this sort of elitism in certain, um, liberal circles, this sort right. of very wealthy elitist, um, disconnected perspective. And, um, some of my friends said, gosh, you know, you're doing a reading in this town and you totally talk about you know, you make fun of this. And I, and I said, well, yeah, because it's bullshit. Like, you know, I mean, yeah, I'm on the left too, but I can also recognize that we've got problems, you know what I mean? Uh But it's like, it seems like we're not allowed to say, 
you know, well, we were, it's like, we're not really allowed to look at the problems on our side, you know, air quotes. Uh-huh. I, I remember that section of the book, uh, uh, specifically you sort of comparing yourself to a mom who seemed sort of, you know, to fit the mold of the perfect mom who participates in all the activities and, and all of that. And I, I remember that that part of the book struck me so much, uh, because it was, you know, it was comparing, you know, your story to this very picture perfect story. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's, that's part of that, um, that sort of disconnect that I'm, that I'm trying to address is, you know, this sort of polish that we, that we put on, um, mothers, particularly, I think Mm -hmm. sort of veneer (laughs) to be perfect and to be, um, sort of aligned politically in a certain way. And, and everything just becomes, I think it just, it just becomes a little too oversimplified for me, I guess, is Mm -hmm. the point. (laughs) So we're talking about uh, truth here, and, and this is, is really kind of an interesting conversation to me. It's something that's been on my mind a lot uh, because both of us in a lot of ways are media creators and every one of us has the opportunity to create media. We all do to some degree, even with something as simple as what we choose to put in our Facebook status updates. And as somebody who creates media, I think we have you know, an incredible responsibility. And also we hold something very delicate in our hands um, because people often will make decisions based on, you know, what they consume. Mm -hmm. How do you see us getting back to a place of truth in, in such a polarizing media environment as somebody who creates media that for, you know, better or worse is actually quite polarizing. True. Dang. That's a big question. (laughs) Um, I mean, I think we're slowly, I think it will take the collapse of what we're doing now. I mean, and I think we're getting there. I mean, I don't know if you saw recently, there was some graphic shown um, about the right. It was the sort of bar graph that showed the, you know, the far right and then the far left and then the, the, the population that was sort of in the middle between them and how far left and how far right were the extremists. And over the last 30 years, you can see those two far right and the far left, the two bars just getting further and further away and the centrist part getting smaller, you know, the the shared values and the the people that sort of crossed in between. And I think as we, as we observe this disaster, um, I think we're going to have to go somewhere from it. And I think, I don't think we're going to have a choice, but to start listening both to what the other side is saying and the critiques of our side, right. Mm -hmm. But to look at our own, our own, um, the lies that we tell ourselves. And, but I think that people speaking honestly, um, maybe less attacking and name calling, (laughs) Mm -hmm. if if we could imagine such a thing and a little more, um, speaking from personal experience from your place in the world. I mean, I don't know. That's, that's kind of why I try to function in a place of just speaking from where I stand and not, assuming the position or, or, um, uh, assuming I understand other people's positions Definitely. just because I think as people model more and more of that, of the self analysis, you know uh-huh. what I'm saying? Like the looking inward and going, okay, why is it that I see it this way? What narratives have I consumed? You know, where am I being rather tribalistic in my thinking? And that sort of modeling of the internal work of, what lies am I telling myself that have allowed me to align so fully with this extremist perspective and the refusal to understand other perspectives? I don't know. 
I, um, but I mean, I'm not super hopeful. <laughs> I, I'm not, I want to be more hopeful, but I, I, I trust, but I was looking at, but I think art is one of the things that does that for us, man. I mean, I spent, I just spent a few days in Chicago with my husband on book tour and I was down at the Institute of Art in Chicago and I went down to the basement and they had this whole, um, photography and film, um, installation of mostly the civil rights time in, in Chicago. And it was, it was just incredible. I mean, it just brought tears to your eyes to watch, you know, the activism and the art that's created in that mess. And I think that art is largely how we get there, you know, how we get to that place where we're looking inward and we're seeing truths that we don't want to see maybe because it isn't quite so, um, you know, I think art has an ability to do that for us, allow us to see things that we otherwise wouldn't see. Hey, it's Srini. I wanted to tell you about our new online course called Distraction Mastery. In this course, you'll learn exactly how to eliminate time-robbing distractions, master your attention, and get in the zone on command. In under 10 minutes a day, you'll learn a proven powerful framework for killing distractions and developing unshakable focus based on proven research and experience. These are the exact strategies that I've personally used to write two books and hundreds of articles. So to learn more, visit courses.unmistakablecreative.com. Again, that's courses.unmistakablecreative.com. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I would say. I think the other thing that's really interesting is that you know, the whole meaning of what authority is is really changing too, right? Because if somebody says, you know, like this is the thing that I have always kind of abided by is that you should never treat anybody's advice as gospel only guidance. Yes. Or you're going to get let down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, the, you know, it, it's so funny because I think one of the things that really struck me from our first conversation, and I remember writing this down somewhere, I may have even written an article about it. Uh, I remember you said, eventually I'm going to disappoint you because I'm human. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Well, I think that makes a, a really nice segue to actually talk about sort of your backstory and how you've gotten to this point. Um, you know, I think there was, I don't remember the exact line in the book. And I, this is why I was so annoyed that I couldn't find it this morning because this line in particular really struck me. But, uh, you know, I know your background. You were an honor student in high school. Um, you know, you were, came from, you know, what sounds like a relatively good family. You weren't headed down the path of trouble. And I don't know if you remember the exact quote I'm talking about. But the, the question was the very question you posed is how does somebody like you end up on the path that you did? Yeah. Yes. I don't remember the exact question, but it was something along those lines. And that is the question. <laughs> um, you know, so you're asking me that question, right? Yeah. Okay. So, you know, I'm not sure. I, I wish I had that, um, that insight fully, but I, I mean, over the years, I mean, I'm nine years in recovery from drug um, addiction and alcoholism after having my lost my children for tears. I know you know this, but I was mm -hmm. saying it for your listeners. Um, and, you know, Srini, I, I think all I can really say about that is that I had these very staunch religious beliefs. You know, I was I grew up at least partially in the Mormon church, kind of a long story, but I, I did go every week. My dad and family was not Mormon. Uh, my mom was a loose Mormon. I mean, she was LDS, but she was not particularly um, rigid about a lot of it. And so... I had these very firm beliefs in God and um, morality and the way you're supposed to live. And then I smoked pot for the first time. And 
nothing happened. <laughs> and I'll tell you, man, I really felt like I had been hoodwinked. Um, I really thought God would do something. I thought he would, you know, part the clouds and hit me or that I would feel something. I didn't even feel anything. And I think that combined with this sense of, I had a lot of fear and a lot of unrest and a lot of feeling separated from the rest of the world. Um, and I couldn't find material relief in my beliefs. Does that make sense? Like I couldn't find my, my religious beliefs didn't actually help me feel better inside and alcohol did. And so I think the combination of it as a teenager of feeling like I'd been lied to, like I'd just been sold a giant crock of shit, frankly, combined with this sense of isolation and fear and wanting an actual relief of, of the way that I felt it just was a sort of perfect storm. Um, and the first time I drank alcohol, I thought I'd found God. I thought, okay, well, this is what I've been looking for. Cause I put this stuff in my body and I feel better instantly. I feel free. I feel smart. I feel like the future is hopeful and the past makes sense. And I pursued that relief and that feeling, um, at pretty much any cost, but I was still able to go to college. I was an honor student. I went abroad to Spain, you know, I kind of kept my look good, looking mm -hmm. good, you know? Um, but you know, unfortunately alcoholism is a progressive disease and I didn't know I had it. And as it, as you continue drinking, it gets worse. And so by the time I w was having problems, I couldn't stop. Uh, big problems, right? By the time I really was trying to stop, I couldn't stop. And, and then I just sort of went downhill from there. But I, I, I definitely, you know, I would say at the risk of sounding a little woo woo here, I, I think I went to drugs and alcohol for largely sort of spiritual bankruptcy, a sort of vapid feeling inside of me. I don't know if that, um, sort of a search for meaning, a search for something to make this life meaningful and manageable. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I chose the wrong solution. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, if I remember correctly from our last conversation, uh, you said that your brother is a doctor, uh, yeah. who is very devout, uh, as a Mormon. Yeah. What has been the impact on, uh, the relationships in your life with both your mother and, um, your siblings as a byproduct of this. I think the, the relationship with your kids is obvious and we'll get into that, but let's talk about the relationship with your mother and your brother as a result of this. You mean of the book or my alcoholism? Of your, or the... of your alcoholism. And then we'll talk about the book as well. Well, you know, I don't come from a family where they, you know, eject people like me. Um, I have a very, very loving family and they, while they didn't understand what was going on, um, we have a lot of alcoholism in our family on my father's side, but, um, they did the best they could for me, you know? And, um, now, I mean, they, so they, they did absolutely everything they could. My brother was living in Virginia when most of this disaster was occurring. He was in medical school in Virginia. And, um, I, so I was out here in California, but they, they definitely didn't come at me with religion knowing that that wouldn't work. I mean, they showed me a lot of love, you know, they tried to do what they could. Mm -hmm. Religion has never been used, um, 
they have never used religion as a weapon against me, which I realize is not every family, but that was, I was lucky enough to have that. Mm. Did that answer your question? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So what was the low point? What was the thing that finally caused you to say, okay, this is enough? Well, you know, you might say it would, you would think it was when my children, my mother showed up one day and took my children 
um, I was not in a condition where I could take care of them. And I had lost my job, um, because I had, I had drug induced schizophrenia. So I was out of my mind and, um, so I was unable to hold a job. I was not with my children and I was desperately trying to get sober in and out of rehabs, went to a mental institution, couldn't do it. And, and none of those moments got me sober, which is so bizarre. You would think it would, but the reason it didn't is because alcohol was still working for me in the sense of I could drink the alcohol and get that relief that I was describing earlier. Um, and unfortunate news for anyone who's listening and still drinking alcoholically someday alcohol will stop working for you. I'm sure you've all heard about that, right? That like someday the drug stops working and you are left in this, um, horrible rat wheel, just this hamster wheel of chasing something that you used to, you used to know, and it never comes back. And, you know, Srini, I don't think I'll ever fully understand what happened to me that morning, but, um, I had woken up one morning, it was March 5th, 2009 in my mother's house. I had weaseled my way back in. I I was lying saying I was sober and I was not, I, I had managed to get, you know, barely get my job back so that when I was on my last legs there, cause I hadn't been showing up again. And, um, I woke up that morning and I just, I, I was coming off a three day drunk. I was shaking. I was sweating. I was very sick and something shifted in me internally where I always had a next move, you know, like in the all the other times that I would be trying to fight my alcoholism, I always said, well, as soon as this one thing happens, I'm going to get my act together. You know, as soon as I work my marriage out or I deal with my childhood issues or I get my job back, there was always some maneuver that I had invented that was going to fix my life. And then I wasn't going to have to drink again. And, um, or, you know, this rehab's going to fix me or this psychiatrist is going to fix me. And it all failed. And that morning I ran out of ideas Um, and rather than having a next move or a way to fight it, I gave up the fight and I accepted that I was an alcoholic and that I was not able to drink. And at that moment I became teachable. That was, you know, my ego was crushed enough that people were able to help me. (laughs) And that was the turning point for me. It, It was an internal shift. I wasn't even the lowest I had ever been materially. Um, I was actually doing better off than I had in quite a, quite a long time. And, but it was an internal desperation and shift and surrender that took place that, that forced me to accept that I needed help and that I could not drink and that I needed people to teach me how to live as a sober human being. And, um, I did not expect to be able to stay sober, to be quite honest with you. I never had in the past. Uh So Yeah. So it was interesting. I mean, I don't know in your experience, it's often the internal shift that has to take place in order for our lives to change. You know, we can rearrange the externalities till the cows come home and it doesn't do shit, but something shifts inside of us and boom, we're a new person. You know what I mean? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Do you remember making any decisions in that moment about how you would behave and choices you would make in your future? Other than not drinking, obviously. Well, I remember feeling like I always wanted things back in the past before that moment. I always wanted certain outcomes. You know, I wanted my kids back or I wanted my husband back or I wanted my job or 
I wanted all of these things that were focused on me. Um, and in that moment, you know, to be quite honest, I didn't want anything back. I wanted to be free. I wanted to live freely on this planet. Um, and not be a servant to alcohol. And that was a huge shift. <laughs> that was something I had never felt before where I, the hustle was gone. Um, and it's interesting because the, the language that we use often with these things, you know, with things that are struggles that we're having is, um, is often around fighting and battle, you know, fight the battle, fight the war, you know, beat this. And, um, and for me, it had to be, it was more of a surrender when I started finding things changing for me, when I stopped fighting and I accepted the truth was when things started changing for me. And so that was the biggest shift for me, I think was when I realized that I wasn't chasing something else anymore other than freedom, <laughs> other than being able to, you know, live a day on the planet, not beholden and tied to this substance. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Wow. Uh, so as somebody who has been, uh, the rehab who has um, had a drug addiction problem, who has had an alcoholism problem. Uh, I can't help but ask you about your thoughts on our criminal justice system and the amount of people that are locked up for nonviolent drug uh, offenses. So what was the question? I'm sorry. Can you I, ask me I'm just question? wondering, you know, as somebody who's been through this, I am wondering what your opinion is on how many people we have locked up for nonviolent drug offenses. Oh, it's awful. It's ridiculous. It's, it's, I mean, it's utter nonsense. I mean, I, because it doesn't solve the problem, right? We're it treating adds, a health problem like a criminal problem. I right. Like. You're treating a health problem like a criminal problem. And that doesn't mean that, th- that people don't need to be held accountable. But when, when you have someone, an addict who is, you know, jocked a TV and didn't harm anyone and you give them 10 years in prison, I mean, what are you, especially considering what we do to people when they get out of prison? I mm. mean, what, I mean, the, what we do to their lives. I mean, I have friends who are sober. I have friends who've been sober for 20 years who were in prison for heroin, for stealing, you know, for possession or for stealing somebody's stuff. And they've been sober 20 years and are trying to, I mean, I have a friend who was recently, Oh, makes me get emotional. Um, she was in and out of prison for years and she grew up in a family with uh, crack addicts. Her mother smoked crack with her for the first time when she was 10. Um, that was the environment she grew up in. She was completely institutionalized in, you know, in that rotating wheel of in and out of prison. She got sober about 18 years ago and she recently got a job as a mail carrier. And it was, um, 18 years she had to work to try to get a place that would hire her in spite of her uh, criminal past. And I, you know, when you think about that, that you're marred and you're scarred for life and it doesn't matter it doesn't matter if you get sober. It doesn't matter what you do. You still have to check that felon box. And you, I mean, and she was able to appeal to, I mean, the postal service hired her and it was one of the proudest moments she's ever had. I mean, she called me just in tears and just, and she's been a mail carrier now for years and it's, it's just fabulous. But it's like, I mean, my God, I mean, this woman turned her complete life around in a miraculous way and was never able to shed those, that, you know, 15, 20 years that she lived that way, despite, even though she grew up in that home, even though she had everything stacked against her. And 
and I think, and I, you know, there's a lot of money to be made in the prison system. I think, you know, people have got to read, you know, Michelle Alexander's book, right. The new Jim Crow and watch 13th. And I mean, there's a lot of money to be made in keeping these people going in and out of prison, but they're not getting treated. We're treating the symptom and not the, the cause. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's tragic. It's really, really, I mean, there's a, I work out at this, uh, I go volunteer out at this perinatal rehab facility near my house where it's for, it's for pregnant drug addicted women who commit, who commit nonviolent drug related crimes. So stealing possession, et cetera. Um, and sometimes they will be sentenced to, or allowed to go to this rehab facility where they can go with their other children and, and get, um, prenatal care. They can stay there as long as they want. They get education. They get, you know, formula for the babies. They get a safe birth. Um, and then they are slowly transitioned back into society. But there is one of those institutions in Northern California. One. Hmm. And 20 women in it. So, I mean, come on. Like, yeah, I mean, I don't know. You send them to prison. You take their baby away. Their baby goes into the system. I mean, it's just... It's really sad, Serene. It's really bad. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I mean, I watch this and it's like, you know, because a lot of these women, if think about you have three or four kids and if everybody you know is a drug addict and you're alone, where are you going to put your kids to go get treatment? I mean, most rehabs don't, ex- don't allow children to come with them. So where are these women going to go get help? <laughs> what are they going to do with their kids? <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. And then so, you know, the CPS, um, off, you know, the, the, uh, timeline for child reunification does not align with what we know about addiction and relapse and recidivism. So you're, you're asking these, um, to, you're asking drug addicts to completely get their lives together, get housing, get sober, get treated, get health, get, um, get a job in six months, Yeah, which is just, it takes three months. If you're coming off heroin, it takes three months before you can really function. I mean, honestly, Mm-hmm. So I don't mean to go on a rampage, but yes, I asked the question for a reason. (laughs) Yeah. Were you ever scared that you would end up going further and further down this path and ending up in that situation? Absolutely. And I'm still scared of it. I mean, the, the, and and honestly, Serena, the only difference between me, my outcomes and a lot of the outcomes of the people I'm talking about is uh, class and race. Right. Mm -hmm. So I had, I came from a family that was able to send me to rehab. I came from a family where my mother was able to take my children. Um, I, I am the color, my skin color is such that I can drive, you know, I can be high or loaded and two, two o'clock in the morning in a bad neighborhood. And the police escort me out of the neighborhood. That literally happened to me. Mm -hmm. I was in a neighborhood in, I think it was Richmond when I was a kid and I had a bunch of drugs in the backseat of my car and I, um, was driving in a, you know, air quote, bad neighborhood. And I thought for this policeman pulled up behind me and I thought for sure they were going to pull me over. No, 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 no. He was escorting me out. Hmm. He escorted me to the freeway, making sure I got out of the neighborhood safely. So, I mean, I got pulled over three times for drunk driving. I got off every time they let me off every time. So I would have had very different outcomes had my socioeconomic and ethnic background been different, you know, and, and that's not lost on me. I, that is not lost on me. I mean, my family was able to you know, we weren't wealthy, but my family was able to, you know, get their, get credit or get funds together to send me to these rehabs where I was able to clean up my act for a while. And, and consequently I had very different outcomes than, than people who don't have those support systems. And that's not lost on me. And that's one of the reasons I spend a lot of time at the mission and out at these facilities, trying to kind of repay my debt and try to be of service to people with, 
with less, you know, fewer resources than I had. Mm-hmm. But it isn't because I was better than them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I wasn't a better addict. I was, uh, I was positioned differently in society. And then I, so I had different outcomes. What misperceptions do you think that, um, people have about people like you and people like the ones that we're talking about that are created by media, created by their social programming? Because I'm willing to bet money that the 20 year old version of me probably would not you know, think, oh, this is a person, you're the person I want to talk to um, and have a conversation on a podcast. Absolutely. I, I wouldn't either. <laughs> because I, I think my, my perceptions would have been flawed with an incredible amount of judgment for the things that you've done. Absolutely. And, and you would be right in those judgments. And those things are all, they're definitely terrible things. Um, and, but I think the I think the major misconception is that it's simply a matter of willpower and, um, and making a decision, right? So, I mean, the addiction is a, is a, is an, is a disease of the, of the pleasure system in the brain, right? Like it's, and I didn't know any of this obviously. Um, but it, it essentially rewires our pleasure system to only associate pleasure with this substance. So, um, I was actually studying with this addiction scientist, relatively recently. And and he was talking about what happens when, um, you take someone who's technically dry, but not, not far into sobriety and you put the, their drug of choice in front of them. If you hook their brains up and you can, and I'm, I'm using very colloquial language because layman's terms, because I don't really know all these, this terminology. Um, if you stick, so for me, if you put a bag of you know, cocaine or whiskey in front of me early on, the part of my brain that would light up is the, is the primitive part of the brain that draw, that is compulsive and drives instinct. And the part of my brain that would go completely blank is the prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain that, um, weighs options and makes decisions and says, if this is a good idea or a bad idea. So when addicts, when their disease has progressed to that point, they're driven to this substance for survival. They can't, they can't even see the, um, the outcome or the, the pros and cons, or they can sometimes, but it's very hazy. And so if we come at them, and that's one of the reasons I wrote this book is particularly with mothers. I mean, the narrative that surrounds motherhood and addiction that I've seen mostly in my nine years of sobriety is, you know, you hear, most of the, a lot of the the talks and the blogs and the books as well, even is, you know, I was a terrible, terrible addict. And then I gazed at my newborn's baby toes, or I saw those positive lines on the pregnancy test. And I fell so in love with my child. I never drank again. And I think that is a, I mean, obviously that is a wonderful story and I, and I love it. Um, and I'm so glad that happened for those people. But when I read that, I would think about the children of addicts who couldn't get sober mm-hmm. and the, the, um, the conclusion that they would logically draw, you know, if they had a mother who died of this disease or was still in it. And the conclusion would be, I guess my mother didn't love me enough. And so to answer your question in a really long winded way, I think that's the major misconception that I see that it is a lack of love or a lack of morality that gets people to this point. Um, and love is not necessarily, you know, once alcoholism has progressed past a certain point, it really doesn't give a shit who you love. I mean, it's not, 
that's not how that works. And, um, and it's tragic. And I also am not here to defend the addict at all or make them a victim or say that they don't deserve, um, obviously they have to take responsibility and they have to have consequences. And none of this is some sort of touchy feely, like, you know, wah, let's all just get in a huddle and, you know, feel sorry for the addict. That's not what I'm saying. Um, but if we, but if we actually want outcomes, we're going to have to get past the sort of coming at people with, Oh, but don't you love your children? Mm -hmm. Right. Coming at an addicted mother with, but don't you love your kids? That's not doing anything to get her sober because of course she loves her kids. That's why she's trying to get sober. Right. Mm -hmm. A lack of love is not, um, necessarily the problem. So, that was a long-winded way of answering your question, but I think that that you know what I wrote with my book is largely me trying to address on some level uh, both the narratives surrounding motherhood, but through the lens of addiction. And um, I really wanted to look at those two themes together. This the sort of because this juxtaposition of the of the disgusting nature of addiction and the things that we do, you know, coupled with how deeply we can love our children, brought up a lot of questions for me in my own life, and I was exploring them in this book. Yeah. Where did, uh, where did the title come from? Because I remember thinking to the title, I'm just happy to be here. And I thought, wow, I mean, it makes sense to me, but I, I'm wondering how you came up with it. Because it's a sentence I repeat so often in sobriety. <laughs> it was, um, you know, when I would have a problem, you know, often going back to this place of, of gratitude, frankly, um, and just this sort of humor of it, you know, I'm just happy to be here. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, I'm not doing this perfectly, you know, parenting, marriage, job, writing. Um, but at the, at the last, I really am just happy to be here. And that was because it was a sentence that I found myself saying to others and in my own head so often when I would feel like, oh, I should be better. It should be this or it should be that kind of going back to that place of just saying, well, shit, you know, <laughs> I'm just lucky to be here. You know, it's just kind of nice to be alive and have a functioning life, mm-hmm. vaguely functioning. Right. <laughs> So, uh, you know, I know that you and I were talking about the fact that uh, you have been traveling for book tours uh, and getting to do readings of this book. What have the conversations been like with uh, the people that you've been reading? Absolutely breathtaking. I And I do not use, you know me, I do not use that word lightly. Um, they, 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 whew, yeah. Um, at every stop, there have been one or you know two or three people who have just walked up to me and started to talk and just not been able to talk, just mm-hmm. started crying. And, um, and that's pretty spectacular. Um, both addicts or families of addicts, but also mothers who have just said, you know, I see myself so clearly in this work and that, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, that's why we do this work, right? I mean, mm-hmm. to, to be seen and to have other people see us and to, I mean, to have other people see themselves in us that, you know, me talking to the humanity in you and that having that connection. I mean, that's why I write. And, um, and so to, to go around the country and, uh, the West coast mostly and, um, see that that's actually happening. Um, that, my work is, is hitting people kind of in that deep truth and the, and their bones. That's, you know, that's why I wrote it. And I think that's why we do this work. It's the, it's, it's incredibly rewarding and incredibly humbling, mm-hmm. you know, um, and, and 
and it's an honor. Yeah. It's, it's really blown me away, honestly. Yeah. And it messages too. a lot of emails and, um, Facebook messages and comments that have really taken my breath away. You know, it's interesting because I think that really makes a, a nice segue to talking about what you and I were talking about before we hit record here uh, about this notion that you've created something with a great deal of emotional resonance. And at the same time, you have to kind of ignore the, the desire for it to be commercially successful. Oh, God, it's so fucking hard. <laughs> I know, you know. Um, yeah, it's this incredible dissonance that I think a lot of authors feel. Um you know, and I, I was reflecting on this the other day at a reading that I think sometimes we choose our work and sometimes our work chooses us. And this, this book definitely chose me. It was not a book I had envisioned writing. Um, it was the book I wrote. It was the book that came out of me. Well, that was sounded like birth. Um, and, you know, frankly, I was a little terrified and, and low-key disappointed, but I was like, oh, shit, I'm writing this book? Oh, no. Because um, I really could have written a book that was more in line with my blog, that was, you know, comedy or, you know, really, really, really funny. I mean, there's a lot of dark humor in the book, but mm -hmm. I mean, of course, because I can't be any other way. But, um, you know, I could have written a sort of tongue-in-cheek parenting guide or something sort of more mainstream that really, I think, would have... That, that probably would have been more commercially um, successful, although I have no complaints with how this book is doing and I'm incredibly flattered and honored for all of that. You know, you definitely, you, there's a moment that where you go, okay, I could definitely align with what's mainstream and what's probably the surefire thing, you know, the, or I can take this riskier path and write something that's a little less uh, universally accessible or it's definitely going to get me hate mail. Um, and that dissonance of trying to do your art while also trying to feed your family is, is a tough one. You know, every decision with the publisher, I felt like I was, and they were wonderful, but I felt, you know, this pull of, do I go with my gut or do I go with what's more marketable, right? <laughs> do I go with me or do I go with what's going to sell and finding myself stuck in this place of, being grateful for what we just talked about, these people coming to me and saying, oh my goodness, you know, thank you so much for writing this. And then the next day I'm shifted into complete terror because I'm not selling enough books. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and how do we stay focused in that place? I mean, how do we stay centered in why are we doing our work? What brings my work? You know, what makes this work meaningful? Is it analytics and data and numbers or is it the actual work itself and the connection with people? And going back and forth between those two realities is absolutely exhausting. And I had no idea it was going to be like this. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I was telling you, I think that uh, for me, I am wrestling with that dissonance in a way that I never have before, before, because the very message of my book is the antithesis of metrics and measurements. And everything we're doing is centered around what are we going to do to make this commercially successful? Oh, my God. Yeah. <clears throat> so like yeah. when, you know, yes. it, when you have a message in the book that says this is not the way to approach it right. and that's what you're doing the whole time, there's, uh, there is very much a lot of dissonance and, and bizarre paradoxes at play. Right. And you're like, and, and there's a sense of, you know, who am I, what am I doing? I mean, and, and, but, but also as we talked about, you want your work in front of people, yeah. right? I mean, why we don't want to write in a vacuum. So mm -hmm. <laughs> how do we get the work in front of people? Well, we have to play the game. But can we play the game without losing ourselves? You know, can we play the game without losing our integrity, our sense of, you know, disruption and wanting to resist a little bit, you know, the, the, 
everything we talked about, that super mainstream kind of the resist, you know, resist those narratives, um, which your book is clearly going to do as you're talking about it. Um, but yeah, how do we, how do we be in the system and disrupt the system at the same time? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a lot. Wow. Wow. But, but just, I think we just do. And I, and I, I've read a lot of, you know, I've, um, I think Margaret Atwood wrote an essay in one of her books that I, I'm not going to be able to recall um, her book on writing where she wrote, yeah, where she talks about this exact thing. Um, and James Baldwin wrote an essay called The Artist's uh, Search for Integrity or something along those lines where they were both addressing sort of what your first commercial success, you know, whether it's huge or, you know, relatively small um, or relatively big, um, what that does to you as an artist. And that's been helpful to look at you know, that path, not that I'm anywhere near either one of them, obviously, but just listening to other, reading other artists talk about that exact dissonance and how to go back and forth with that. Wow. Wow. Um, well, this has been really, really amazing as I, I kind of expected it would be. I mean, I, I, I didn't know if we'd be able to top our last two conversations, but uh, I am really, really grateful that you have uh, you know shared all this. So I want to finish with my last question, and I'm really interested to see how you'll answer this after having finished a book and uh, two years later. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think it's the people who are willing to say the way they see it at whatever cost, um, for better or worse. And the, the longer I am in this, in the internet world and saturated with the fake news and the, the, um, so many people with this incredible polished narrative of, you know, self-empowerment or the entrepreneur, entrepreneurialism, um, you know, repeating the same things over and over and over in every narrative, you know? And so I, I maintain that the unmistakable people are the ones who just fucking say something else, um, whether they're right or wrong. And that's, that's a huge part of this, right? Is that as soon as we speak up, we risk being wrong. We risk failing and we risk being wrong. And a lot of the people who are unmistakable, I would say are wrong. (laughs) You know, uh, we don't align, but are they unmistakable? Absolutely. Because they have planted themselves firmly on the ground and they're willing to speak. And I think that that's all we really have, you know, when everything else is, is taken away and all the bullshit and all the fear and all the commercial success and money and this, it gets back to, am I speaking the truth as I see it? Hmm. And if we can look at ourselves and answer yes, I think we're, we have a pretty solid chance of, of being on an unmistakable path. Wow. Well, I think that makes a really uh, fitting and beautiful end to our conversation. Where can people find out more about you and your work? Well, I have, um, my blog, Renegade Mothering, which is all over. It's renegademothering.com. It's on Facebook, Twitter, um, everywhere, Instagram. And my book, I'm just happy to be here was published May 1st, 2018. And it's available everywhere. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, 
instructive, maybe even heartwarming. Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills 
whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.